I grew up in Philadelphia. I'm a first-generation American because my parents came here in the 70s. My dad was born and raised in Morocco. My mom was born in Denmark and raised in Israel. And you know, they met in Switzerland, so they already have this kind of very international background. They came to the States, not really sure that they were going to stay here. I was sort of raised in that way in Philly of it's not entirely my permanent home. Um, but the one thing that was very, I think, central to my upbringing is just a lot of art and design. And that's largely because my mom is an architect. She was really insistent that, you know, we get exposure to museums and travel and how things are made and, and to look at the details of how either buildings are constructed or materials are created. So I think that has, has a huge impact on how I see the world. Every business, whether or not they realize it, is an idea business. And great ideas can come from anywhere. The people at Gray have a long history of finding and creating famously effective ideas. And so with Gray Matter, we explore the ideas shaping our world. We ask creators, artists, founders, and leaders from different industries about how they came up with their best ideas. And that's Gray Matter. On this episode of Gray Matter, we'll discuss an idea that is always going forward and exploring the intersection of material and form. Hi, I'm Jason Connor, Global Chief Client Officer at Gray. This week, we're discussing the ideas and creativity behind the design studio, Slash Objects. Gray New York's Chief Creative Officer, Tiago Cruz, connected with Ariel Asseline Lichten, Slash Objects principal and founder, about the story of bringing her studio to life. In 2016, Ariel founded Slash Objects, a furniture design studio that uses design to transform the human experience of the world and produces work that aims to create social change. In that inaugural year, Slash Objects was placed on the American Design Hot List. Ariel followed that up by being awarded Best of NYC by Design in 2018 and received the American Design Honors in 2019. In 2021, Ariel was a finalist on the HBO Max show, Ellen's Next Great Designer, and on that show she designed nine top-tier new and unique pieces. Ariel and Slash Objects' work has been seen in many publications, including Architectural Digest magazine, Vogue, The New York Times, Elle Decor, and Harper's Bazaar. And she has worked with brands like Cartier, Nike, BMW, The Ritz-Carlton, Thompson Hotels, and many others. Ariel holds a Master of Architecture degree from Harvard University and a BA in Critical Theory and Visual Media from NYU. And since starting her design journey, she has been invited to give lectures at the Guggenheim Museum, Columbia University, and Harvard Graduate School of Design. This is Ariel Asseline Lichten. And I'm a furniture designer uh, by way of architecture. And more and more, I consider myself an artist every day. I, you know, I was trying to decide what type of design degree I wanted to pursue. And I was kind of torn between graphic design, web design. I was dabbling in game design at the time. I love technology, so I, I wanted to do something with technology. I really, I really didn't want to be an architect, actually, because my mom was, you know, always saying how it's, it's a really hard profession. Um, but when the time came to choose 
a path, architecture seemed really broad and it seemed like something that I could take the skills that you learn in architecture school and transform them into something that would fit whatever it is that I was, you know, in the future going to do. So uh, that's why I landed on architecture. And it's, it's really true. You do get to have a super broad and very useful education that gives you so many different skills. And after school, I wasn't really sure if I wanted to work in architecture. I did a number of really amazing internships and I worked at Big, um, which is now even bigger than it was then. And I worked at Snoheda and I worked in Japan at Kengo Kuma. So I had these amazing experiences, but I knew that I wanted to kind of forge my own path and create something that was different. So those are three of the most influential architectural studios, I think, in the world. How did that experience inform what you're doing now or inspire what you're doing now? Well, I really, I, when I first landed at Big, I, I knew almost nothing about what an architecture practice really looked like other than, you know, what I'd seen my mom doing, which was she, she mainly worked for herself when I was growing up. So it was a very different experience. It was very, there was a lot of energy, a lot of young people, very fast paced competitions. It was very colorful as well because Bjarke likes to embrace fluorescent colors, which a lot of architects don't. And so I had this whole idea that that's what architecture was going to be like, um, which was really exciting to me. Um, and then I, you know, back in school really discovered that that's not the norm. And that was a bit of an anomaly. And it, it made me kind of seek out these firms that would be different and special and provide these very unique experiences. So I also, because my mother was born in Denmark, I have this kind of Danish, uh, Scandinavian, I would say it's like an essence that is maybe part of me in, in some way. And that coupled with the time that I spent in Copenhagen working at Big and also learning Danish separately, I think that that really influenced my design aesthetic and the way I think about design because, you know, we, we all can admire Scandinavian design. It's so clean, I think very intentional choices, the way they think about materials is really beautiful. Uh, so I've, I would say that that coupled with the time that I spent in Japan, were these really formative experiences in the way I think about design. Tell us a little bit more about yeah. the idea. I well, after school, after I finished my master's in architecture, I was not really clear on what I wanted to do next. I knew I needed some more experience. I knew I didn't want to necessarily go work for a firm. And I decided to cobble together many different types of projects that I was that I was able to find and built a sort of a multidisciplinary design practice out of that. And I thought, well, this way I'll, I'll get to learn a lot of what types of design projects I enjoy and I can kind of bide my time and, you know, worst case scenario, I'll get a job at some firm. So being kind of an independent architect and designer at that time really allowed me to do so many different types of client projects. And in that, I was working on a high-end residential building that uh, I was tasked with doing the gym and a lot of the lobby and many different aspects of the building. So part of it involved kind of marrying these really high-end materials like brass and marble and steel that were part of the lobby and the kind of old New York concept of this building. And at the same time, there was this recycled rubber flooring that I was coming in contact with. 
I was also living and working in Greenpoint in Brooklyn, which is like, you know, it was in a neighborhood that was gentrifying and there was a lot of industry from marble yards and other fabricators left there. So there was this kind of confluence of all these elements that started marinating in my mind of there's something here that I want to create with. And I didn't exactly know what it was going to turn into. But in 2015, I discovered Sight Unseen and they had this very influential platform for emerging designers. And I thought, you know, wow, that seems like such an exciting way to take on a design project. I want to try and propose an idea. Um, And that's when I started brainstorming, you know, what could I propose and what could I show to the design world? And in 2016 is when I launched my brand slash objects, which is really about elevating discarded materials and creating beautiful and long-lasting products and furniture. So the idea really came out of like being in the time and place where I was discovering this new world of actual design, furniture design that I didn't really have exposure to in architecture school. And then also starting to like really kind of play with materials and also be in somewhat close proximity to people that could actually bring these ideas to life. Amazing. And knowing a little bit about your work, I know you work with very specific materials. Um, Tell us more about them and how they influence your, your practice. I'm very passionate about using materials in a way that is not wasteful and that hopefully kind of enables possibilities as opposed to just exacerbates the problem of overproduction and really the fact that we throw away way too much in this consumer culture that is based on, you know, fast fashion, even in the furniture world. The way I think about creating is how to combat that and what are the materials that can stand the test of time? How can I present them together in a way that allows the viewer to look at something that yesterday was maybe garbage and tomorrow it's this really beautiful, interesting, tactile and textured material that you want to learn more about. And all of that, like the way I think about the pieces is very three-dimensional in that I want the viewer to be intrigued and I want them to try and get closer and to look into it. And all of that is really about this moment of self-reflection where you start to question, you know, if like in a really broad way, like the world order and why we make things or how they're made um, and what they're made of and where the lifespan begins and ends. And was there anything about the process of either starting your own firm or working with the materials that you work and developing the objects that you design that felt surprising to you along the way? I mean, every aspect has been surprising to me (laughs) because I essentially went from being a designer that worked with clients and doing kind of service-oriented design. And then that I transformed the business into um, selling a commodity or selling finished pieces. And so just changing from one way of working to another, I think was a huge learning curve for me. But I realized that actually in that process, I loved being my own client and I loved being able to come up with the idea and create something and then kind of present it to the public. 
So that was a discovery. Like when I first started making furniture and objects, I thought it was going to be a side project that I was going to just do once and, you know, just play around and move on and get different clients uh, from that project. But in the end, I kind of kept the project and turned that into the main core of my business because I loved just like the process of discovery, creation, and letting the exploration kind of guide what I produce. So you mentioned at the beginning that you see yourself evolving from designer into more of, of an artist. Did that come as a surprise to you? Yeah, I definitely think that first, for whatever reason, I was reticent to call myself an artist. I think that's maybe, you know, from childhood or just having grown up thinking that, you know, I'm, I'm in the commercial arts, um, I'm, I'm providing an end result or commercial art. So I never really thought of myself as an artist per se, but, you know, every time I talk about my work or show people my work, they're, they're more and more kind of talk about it as works of art. And I also love the part of the project where you get to kind of think about the concept and think about the way it's going to affect people's experience in space, you know, more than the kind of commercial selling of objects part. So that I think makes me an artist for sure. And so when was the moment or was there a moment where you felt like you were actually onto something like that you actually got to see reactions from people around you from not just from a commercial perspective, but also from an emotional reaction to what you were doing? Like, what was that moment like? It's funny because I think that's an ongoing moment that has, it's very cyclical in that you're, you put something out, um, there's a certain response and it resonates with some people, maybe not everyone. And so that gives you kind of a little bit of wind in your sails to go to the next phase. I could almost like describe that moment every year in some ways, Like in my first year in 2016, I won the Sight Unseen's Hot List Award. So that was already, you know, as my first year out winning that kind of honor was enough to keep me going. And then in 2018, I won the Best of NYC by Design at ICFF, which was another big boost. And then in 2019, I won the American Design Honors, which was a really huge boost, I think, in just the way I thought of my, my practice and, and felt like for the first time I was really being taken seriously as a designer in the New York scene. Interestingly enough, I think that this business does rely a lot on recognition and exposure and, and being visible. And that's kind of like this, it's a little bit of a cycle that you need to be a part of, I suppose. Going back to Slash Objects, how long did it take you from having the idea behind Slash Objects to actually bring it to life? Tell us more about that process of starting your own company. So um, originally I started a company called Slash Projects, and that was because I wanted to do many types of projects, architecture, slash graphics, slash web, slash furniture. And I thought by giving it this name, I would keep it really open-ended and... I would kind of see what projects came and I would be open to all of them. And in that was in 2014 that I started officially 
with that company. And then in 2016 is when I kind of rolled out slash objects because it just seemed fitting. Like these are my objects now. And this is that, this is that subcategory of this company. And I honestly thought, you know, this was going to be like a one year project and I was going to next year come out with like slash games or whatever it would be next. But it's now been seven years of slash objects. Everything takes a lot longer than you think. And the process of learning how to build a company, how to produce new products, how to refine every aspect of every operation in the company, all of that just takes an extreme amount of time and dedication and persistence, I would say, that I would have, that is like a huge surprise to me, honestly. I expected everything to happen a lot faster. You know, sometimes I tell people I've been doing this for seven years and they're like, wow, that's so fast. And other times they're like, oh, you've been at it a while. You know, so people have different perceptions of, of what that means. And I think to me, it's more just like I've put in so much time and effort and that's what keeps me going is just knowing that, you know, continue one step in front of the other. And if I think about where I am now versus two years ago, I, I was dreaming about doing something like what I'm doing now. So those are the moments where you think, okay, I'm making progress and I'm getting somewhere. And who would you say have been your biggest supporters in this journey? I think one of the practices that I have consistently done in this time that has really helped me continue on is, you know, mindfulness and, and like a meditation practice and yoga. Um, because I think that as an entrepreneur and often as a creative person working alone, you can feel destabilized in knowing, are you on the right path? Will people like your new collection? Just different kind of questioning of whether or not you're going the right direction. And those types of practices, I think, just remind you to trust your gut, trust your intuition and continue creating especially when you're questioning your inner artist, I suppose. Does that help you deal with the criticism? Because I'm assuming everybody that's in the business of bridging art and commerce has to deal with criticism on a regular basis. So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the critics? Interestingly enough, I think this industry, I mean, different than architecture, but in the furniture industry, it's less of... A criticism and more of silence like you're kind of omitted from the conversation and you're omitted from the prestigious galleries or publications and so that is the kind of like deafening silence of rejection and it's more like and all of that is you know there are politics involved and popularity contests and schmoozing and all it's it's not necessarily straightforward but i is interestingly enough this industry is not hypercritical. It's more about how do you get into the conversation that feels like it's the most impactful at that moment in time. So you can often kind of find yourself feeling like you're on the outside of, you know, whatever it is that's that feels central. And I think the ability to keep getting up every day and producing and trying to get further along is, to me, like the practice of just staying grounded in mindfulness, uh, like meditation or journaling, I do a lot of 
you know, the artist way morning pages and things like that, just to get any negativity out and be able to continue to find solutions and positivity and, and move forward. Tell us more about how you found your own way of breaking that silence in the industry. You know, I recently read a quote that was like, don't try to be the best, try to be the only. And I think that that was it resonated a lot with me because I'm a very competitive person and I always want to be best. Um, and that can be hard when there's not necessarily a best and it's everything is subjective and there are trends and there are waves of, you know, ways in which people are working. So to me, it's really about trying to really express my voice and what my vision is for furniture and design and, and whatever the art practice brings. So I'm constantly trying to recenter myself back to that. Like, how do I get closer to expressing this voice that I imagine and how, how does it manifest in material form or um, what are the colors that come from that sort of like that, that place? So it's really more about always trying to just like have the work speak for itself and then people will come. Tell us something about failure. Like what were some of the failures that you had to face and you had to overcome in the process of producing or producing your work or just managing the company? Tell us about some of the challenges that you had to overcome along the way. So in 2020, I was on a show on HBO Max called Ellen's Next Great Designer, which was kind of a Top Chef style challenge competition. Every week, we had a new furniture piece to design, and it was a, it was a pretty intense experience. Very rewarding, also, but it really kind of tests your limits and it puts you in this like state of hyper adrenaline. And in a way, it was really good for me because. You don't have time to question any of your choices. You just have to act in which I actually think that's like my strength. I can really make decisions from my gut. But in one of the challenges, I started to make choices that were not like I could hear this voice in the back of my mind that was like, this could not really work out for, you know, I, I was working with a new vendor. I was working with material I don't usually work with. I was sort of like going against some advice that I had heard. So in the back of my mind, I was like, this little red flag's going off saying like, Ariel, check yourself. Is this going to work out? And that happens with a lot of projects, especially when they're something that I've never done before or something that's kind of risky. I definitely like to take risks with whether something will like even stand up or not. So <laughs> it's never clear. But this one project ended up being a total failure in many ways because there were just too many risks all in one place and too many variables that were outside of my control. And I just remember, you know, part of it involved like this CNC machine that needed to cut the only piece of material that I had. And, and I'm like a person that likes to hyper test everything like three times so that we don't mess anything up and everything is kind of executed as it's supposed to. And then this one time, you know, we didn't test cutting it before having the drill bit like sink into this precious brass material. And as it kind of went into the material, I thought, wow, it's totally off register. It's in the wrong place and it's going to mess up the entire material. And now what am I going to do? 
so it was like a bit of a moment of panic where I was sort of stunned. In the end, we were able to salvage it. And I think, I think those moments remind me because when I play it back in my head, I'm like, okay, what exactly went wrong there? And it's the fact that I didn't listen to this little voice in my head that said, check the material again, like check the registration again, make sure that everything is lined up properly so that we don't lose this precious material. I think it's, to me, honestly, the, all of those like failures always point to that inner trust and like how getting closer to it. I think the epitome of success is being able to fully trust yourself and make the decisions from that place. So tell us more about that experience of trying to be creative in front of the camera. And, and especially going through a challenging situation like the one that you just mentioned and, and having everybody recorded for posterity, one of your, what you consider a failure. Cause I, cause I imagine there must be a big difference between your regular creative process when you're in your studio doing something that you're passionate about versus having to do it not only on demand and under very specific circumstances, but also having the pressure of having it all being filmed. So how did that affect things? Yeah. To be honest, I actually felt like my process was pretty similar. It just was ex very accelerated. And, you know, a lot of the time my producer would say, you know, why are you testing this three times? We want to just go ahead. And I would be like, no, I, ne I needed to like to work. And she, I think, secretly wanted it to fail so that they had some interesting TV content. But of course, I think there was a lot of It was more like in the in the day to day when I was in my creative flow and I felt like, okay, this is what I have to get done today. You know, there's this clear state where you your mind can like cycle through logically everything that you need to get done in order to execute. And then you go home at night and to me it's like lying in bed running through all the things that could go wrong tomorrow and how this the parts might not fit or something might break or pieces won't come together. And then honestly, I will spend like hours troubleshooting every one of those possibilities so that I have a backup plan in case that happens, in case another thing happens. I think that's useful, but also it's, I'm trying to just go back to like trusting the original plan because oftentimes that will work out. And I guess in terms of how I remember in the in the elimination, well, it was in the elimination scene for that episode. I didn't get eliminated, spoiler. But <laughs> but it was it was a bit of a scare and I was I was pretty distraught about that being on TV and how it was going to come across and I definitely felt like a failure. <laughs> Luckily, I was able to like rebound. <laughs> Amazing. So if you could go back to day one of Slash Objects when you were first getting it started, getting it off the ground, is there anything in retrospect that you feel like you would have done differently? There's probably a million things I would have done differently. <laughs> you know, I think a lot, a lot of my thinking with starting the company pretty early was that I would have time on my side and I would learn all these things that I wasn't going to learn from having experience in a company. And... That can be a really difficult way to, to go about things because you're often kind of reinventing the wheel. I do think it has served me in many ways and I've been able to build a practice that is, you know, maybe atypical or I've been able to innovate or I've been able to like come up with a way of working that's unique. And I think that's super valuable. Um, but I definitely think I would have found a way to just learn from other people 
who've kind of done certain things, you know, I, w- I would have found a way to learn from experts sooner. And I, I think that that's something I'm still working on is really figuring out how to bring more people in and how to leverage either a network or um, other people's expertise. Cause I, I actually think that, you know, and then that's kind of widely known that that's, that is the key to success in many ways is just being able to tap into a network and get answers and get advice. So that's probably, instead of being like the lone wolf that I was, I would probably have tried to surround myself with people that might've known, but then maybe I wouldn't have like done it. Probably people would have told me not to. Yeah. But speaking of advice, what was some of the best that you got along the way and and where did it come from? Who are the people giving you that advice? Some very early advice that I remember getting was from another entrepreneur who, you know, I think it was a kind of a slow period. And he said, enjoy the times where work is slow because it's going to get busy again. And that is probably the most difficult part about being an entrepreneur is kind of weathering the time in between projects or weathering the time when it doesn't feel as busy as it maybe has. And, but also being able to enjoy that newfound time because, you know, the tendency is to just like get anxious about it. And if you're just anxious about the fact that you're not that busy, then you can't enjoy the time. So that I would say is, that was like pretty monumental in allowing me to kind of like persist, actually. Did you ever, you mentioned at the beginning that when you first getting started, you, you thought about, well, if it doesn't work out, I'll just get a regular job. Did you ever get close to that moment? Did you ever think about throwing the towel at some point? Yeah, I definitely thought about it many times. But I would never, I could never really bring myself to fully execute that plan. I would, I would say, oh, tomorrow I'm going to work on my resume and my portfolio. I'm going to get a job. And then tomorrow would come and I wouldn't do any of that. I would just work on a new project or go back to picking up where I left off. So that to me is kind of a clear indication that I wasn't ready to leave slash objects behind or, or, or the dream of success. So what would you say to somebody like you that's listening to this, that perhaps has a good idea that's just as good as yours, but they have no idea where to start and how to bring this to life? Uh, What advice advice would you give them? And it's interesting because a lot of young people reach out to me and they ask, you know, how did you get started and what should I do? And when I started, I also, I think this is important. I always tell them this because you know, you have to have some baseline of income to be able to produce, especially if you're producing physical goods. And I had a a really good client that I was working with at the time. So I had a kind of stable financial situation. And I also had extra time that I could use to create my projects. I think the fact that I had the time and the stable income allowed me to create without much expectation. I wasn't like trying to sell a million of anything. I wasn't trying to really get anywhere because I didn't really know where I wanted to go. I was just exploring and discovering what these ideas that I had floating in my head meant. Um, And I, you know, I, it's, it's kind of amazing, like putting something out into the world, brings people in. So when you create something like inadvertently, people want to learn more about it. They want to support it. And that was, that was a huge surprise to me when I put out my first 
project and I had this booth at Sight Unseen in 2016 and it was like everything that I could possibly have imagined making it out of recycled rubber and marble. And it was it was just very rewarding to see that even though it wasn't a perfect booth and even though it didn't really, wasn't very cohesive in a commercial sense, people were still kind of like intrigued and they were excited that somebody had executed an idea. And that's like the, the core thing is really just to actually make something and try and find an avenue to put it out. And it definitely doesn't have to be perfect. I think there's this other piece of advice that I, and I think this sort of is more of like tech in the tech world that you like, if you, if you ship your first product and it's perfect, you're too late. And I think that's really true. It's like, you want it to be so perfect in every element of the packaging to be seamless and in its highest form. And like at that rate, you won't really get it done. So it's as a perfectionist, it's really frustrating to be like, I'm just going to have to accept this as it is and put it out. And in the next version, I will improve upon it. But like, otherwise, I don't think you can really make anything. <laughs> that, that's amazing. I, I love the notion of fail fast. <laughs> Why slash? Uh, I know you have a tattoo of a slash in your right arm. Um, what made you so passionate about the name? Is there a story behind it? The original story was really just brainstorming how to come up with a name that could be broad, that would also make people think that what I was doing was bigger than just basically myself working on it. Um, and I thought it was, I thought it was open-ended enough that like infinite possibilities could come my way. So it was, it was really just about being able to be open to, you know, architecture slash graphics slash furniture slash object and maintaining this kind of like, infinite notion of what I what I wanted to do or, or more actually accurately like what I didn't know I wanted to do yet because it was I didn't want to confine myself to like a certain way of working or a certain medium or a certain technology I just wanted to see what would happen and so slash I think it's kind of bold and I loved the purity of the mark and it's a forward-facing slash um, and I remember thinking, like, should it be a backslash or a forward slash? But, you know, always going forward, it had to be a forward slash. Do you already have a next slash in mind? Hmm, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still, I'm still, uh, I'm still toiling away at the objects. Um, I would love to work with fashion projects. I would love to work um, with technology. So I definitely want to keep those avenues open and see how I can now kind of come full circle having kind of built this brand that I originally built to get better clients. Like now maybe I can fully execute on that vision and, and be able to collaborate with other amazing companies that want to partner or leverage my skills. I think I'll, simultaneously I'm actually working on more of one of a kind pieces of furniture and objects that are under my own name. So I've, you know, kind of built these two different entities where I can create these pieces that are less reproducible, but are still about 
chasing an idea or um, experimenting without the kind of pressure of having to find a system in which we can replicate those ideas because it's that can be limiting as well. I know that d- due to the nature of the materials that you work with, a lot of the pieces that you produce are quite unique, right? Even if they are meant to be replicated, they're never quite the same, right? Was there ever a specific piece that you found very hard to let go? I have a few pieces that I've made actually for private clients or um, even on the HBO show where they're nearly impossible to replicate. And I think about those pieces all the time. <laughs> I'm like, how are they doing? Where are they? And how would I remake them if I could? So yeah, it's, it's like, it is a really interesting thing because the pieces do become like your babies and you want to kind of, you want to know that they're being appreciated wherever they might land. But it's also nice to imagine them in all of these different spaces, like the fact that people want my work in their homes or in their spaces. That's the, that's really the goal of being a designer is to me is, is having your ideas adopted by other people and having them feel something from the work that you produce. And are you able to keep in touch with some of the owners? Like, would it be weird for them to like send you pictures of your pieces every now and then? I don't know. I hope if anyone's out there listening, <laughs> send me a pic. I want to I see it. <laughs> Sometimes on Instagram, of course, people will post. Um, so I get to see it that way. But so a lot of the times, you know, my pieces are bought from through interior designers or architects. And so I don't really know the final, the client and you just kind of send it off into the ether and hope that it does well. Ariel is so interesting. Tiago, as a creative yourself, what jumps out to you about Ariel's work? I love how she's able to bring her interesting background, all the all her travels, all her experience working in different parts of the world to create work that's really unique. And it's really a reflection of that personal experience. So I really love how she puts her own uh, personality into the work that she does and the way she treats materials. It's very unique. That's super cool. Can you tell us how our listeners can learn more about Ariel and Slash Objects? Sure thing. Visit SlashObjects.com. And just to be clear, you're spelling out the word Slash. There you can find all the beautiful products from chairs to lamps and even coasters that you can put your drinks on. Or you can head over to Instagram and check out some of her work there at slash objects. Will do. Thanks, Tiago. If you'd like to hear more creators, founders, and inventors discuss ideas they are passionate about, then check out all past podcasts in this feed. Reach out to us with questions and comments on Gray's social channels or our email address, podcast at gray.com. And lastly, tell someone about our show. It helps share these ideas with the world. I'm Jason Connor, and thanks for listening to Gray Matter, a podcast about ideas. Gray Matter is hosted by Jason Connor, produced by Samantha Geller, mixed by Guy Rosemarin and Amanda Fuentes at Gramercy Park Studios, with post-production support from Ned Martin, Robin Frank, and Kyle St. Agath. Marketing and administrative support by Christina Hyde, Adrian Hopkins, Marcella Basilar and Gina Cuneo. Editor and executive producer, Joey Scarillo. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.